He may have the most power of anyone at the Capitol, and Dan Patrick's priorities are already shaping the debate for the next session. But I made it very clear. These are concepts, and I want House members and Senate members to now get in the specifics and help write the bills. We go one-on-one -on -one with the Lieutenant Governor, his ideas on some key issues facing the state. The triple-demic of flu, COVID, and RSV renews worries about healthcare staffing. State lawmakers are seeking solutions, the plans that could get more healthcare workers on the job in Texas. Texas Christians divided over issues of same-sex marriage and the role of gays in the church. So much emotion, so many accusations, and it just breaks my heart. The debate pushing hundreds of congregations to break with the United Methodist Church and what comes next. Produced from the Capitol in Austin and airing statewide, this is the award-winning State of Texas. Hello and thank you for joining us. I'm Josh Hinkle. It's a conflict that's been brewing for years. Theological and cultural differences over same-sex marriage and whether to let LGBTQ church members be ordained, creating conflict within the United Methodist Church. Last week, that tension reached a breaking point as hundreds of Texas churches officially cut ties with the UMC. Our Will Dupree explores the reasons and how the split will affect congregations in the state. The University United Methodist Church on the drag is sticking with the affiliation on its signs. I'm a lifelong United Methodist. The United Methodist Church birthed my faith and my call to ministry. Reverend Teresa Wellborn's Austin congregation is not joining the 439 Texas churches that will now leave the United Methodist Church to join a more conservative breakaway denomination, the Global Methodist Church. This is the working out of the realignment of churches since the 1960s. UT professor Chad Seals says the contention now centers on same-sex marriages. The UMC doctrine currently states the church should define marriage as the union of one man and one woman, but either defying or adhering to that policy is causing the church to fracture. We voted by a 98% majority to leave. Lubbock's Oakwood Wesleyan Fellowship was one of 145 churches in the Northwest Texas Conference that voted to leave the UMC. Tom Fuller is Oakwood's senior pastor. The problem comes when any of us takes a, a, a practice which we prefer, uh, which uh, the Bible preaches and teaches against, completely, and uh, demands the church's blessing. Only 50 churches in the Northwest Texas Conference voted to stay with the United Methodist Church. One of those, Lubbock's St. John's United Methodist. I've changed and I've come to believe very, very strongly it is uh, offensive to God to deny ordination to people who happen to be gay or lesbian. Those conservative churches that are leaving are, in a sense, to um, uphold what they see as biblical principles that have been challenged or attacked by culture, whereas progressives see themselves as being more open and more welcoming. I wonder and I worry about. Reverend Wellborn hopes the denomination she's remaining a part of will now change its stance on the LGBTQ community. They're members of our congregation. They're giving of their time, talent, and treasure. Will Dupree joins us now. What did the process involve for these Texas churches to decide to leave the United Methodist Church? Well, Josh, what we saw was the final step in a fairly lengthy process to disaffiliate or leave 
the UMC. Uh, for instance, Texas is divided into five regions or conferences that oversee congregations in each of those areas. And two of those conferences so far have developed rules for individual churches to have the option to vote on leaving the UMC. And then the, con the conference meets to be able to essentially sign off on that disaffiliation. One expert I talked to for this story said that the process that Texas has created for this disaffiliation process is much smoother than what is happening in other states. And that's important because the fractures in this denomination are only going to keep growing. Should we expect more churches in Texas to leave as well? Most likely, yes. So many pastors I spoke to in this story, as well as religious experts, are fully expecting more churches to leave the United Methodist Church sometime in the future. But so far, no other conferences within the state have scheduled anything at this point to allow that process to continue. We, however, will follow it along if it picks up again. Has anything like this ever happened before? Historically, social issues have been a big divider within churches. Historically, race, if you look at that issue in particular, has created division within churches before the Civil War and well into the 20th century. Additionally, some de denominations here recently have created divisions because of the issue of women serving as pastors or becoming ordained. Uh, we do know that some of the churches within the Southern Baptist Convention left recently. And then finally, the Episcopal Church lost some, search, some churches recently because of the issue of same-sex marriage. All right, Will, thank you very much. A high-stakes vote in Congress illustrates the ongoing division over same-sex marriage. The U.S. House passed the Respect for Marriage Act to protect same-sex marriages at the federal level. The vote comes amid concerns that the Supreme Court could roll back same-sex marriage rights. While the measure had bipartisan support, only 39 Republicans backed the bill. All Democrats voted yes. In the Texas delegation, 22 of the 24 Republicans voted no. Congressman Tony Gonzalez was the only Texas Republican to vote for the bill. Outgoing Congressman Kevin Brady did not cast a vote. Both Texas Senators Ted Cruz and John Cornyn voted against the legislation last month when it passed the Senate. We didn't really feel like we had a lot of options as far as where to take them. Parents struggling to get a doctor's appointment as a virus surge hits Texas. It's happened before. How lawmakers are looking at solutions to get more health care workers on the job. And later, one-on-one -on -one with Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. From property taxes to abortion to schools. How his ideas are already setting the course of the session. Hospitals and clinics across Texas are seeing a surge in patients amid an increase in cases of flu, COVID, and RSV. The triple-demic is just the latest such surge that's putting pressure on healthcare workers. It's highlighting concern about the ongoing difficulties in finding enough doctors, nurses, and other healthcare professionals to meet the demand. Monica Madden looks into the problem as well as some proposed solutions that lawmakers could consider in the coming session. It was pretty miserable. Two RSV diagnoses for Fort Worth mother Kirsten Openshaw's sons was bad enough. We did so good. Tough watching them struggle. I mean. Baby Quentin was born prematurely, and four-year-old Lincoln has a heart defect. So getting treatment fast was critical. We had quite a few sleepless nights where he was just having a real hard time breathing, you know, keeping them inclined, doing a lot of breathing treatments, that kind of thing. She didn't expect not being able to get either of them a doctor's appointment when they got sick. We really only take them in 
if it's really bad. Her pediatrician's office told them to go to the emergency room. Openshaw ended up driving an hour to get her boys into a rural doctor. We didn't really feel like we had a lot of options as far as where to take them. The virus surges combined with overall staffing shortages leading to similar scenarios for Texans across the state. Emergency rooms have been inundated. Children's hospitals as well as adults, um, they've seen double their usual daily number. And that's, uh, you're never staffed to gear up that much. It's why lawmakers like Representative Donna Howard, a nurse, are honing in on broader staffing solutions. We've got to do more to invest in the workforce pipeline with education, reimbursement, tuition assistance, getting faculty in place. Without enough staff to meet demand, families like Openshaw's will have to brace for waiting. No doubt that if we hadn't gotten an appointment, this situation would have been bad. For parents who might not be able to get their child into a pediatrician, healthcare professionals recommend trying to get a telehealth appointment first before going to the ER. Josh. Monica, this is just the latest surge in patients straining healthcare workers around the state. Lawmakers are less than a month away from the next session. What are some of the ideas coming at the Capitol to help with the ongoing staffing crunch? We've already seen a number of bills pre-filed, including Representative Howard. She filed a bill that would target violence against healthcare workers. It's always existed, but definitely was exacerbated by the pandemic. So her bill would set up mechanisms for reporting that violence, provide security and treatment if necessary. Now, while that doesn't exactly target workforce issues directly, those types of threats certainly don't help with staff retention. So she's hoping it'll help with that. And another bill filed by Senator Lois Kolkhorst would expand support for college and university level nursing education. Things like loan repayment assistment, assistance and grants to nursing programs. So that bill directly aims at improving the pipeline from school to the workforce. Josh. All right, Monica, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. The deadly winter storm fueled calls to redesign the electricity market in Texas. Now there are new questions about the plan, how the people in charge are responding to the concerns. He may have the most power of anyone at the Capitol, but will that be enough to push Dan Patrick's priorities through? I can have initiatives and priorities, but I need the votes in the Senate to bring them to the floor and pass them to the House. We go one-on-one -on -one with the Lieutenant Governor, how his ideas will shape what becomes law in Texas. Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick unveiled a long list of legislative priorities with property taxes, grid fixes, and rural needs at the top. But to make it happen, he must reckon with caps on spending and competing ideas from other top leaders. Our Ryan Chandler spoke with the Lieutenant Governor about his priorities and how he plans to make his list law, starting with property tax relief. Why is this session the time when Texans can see some substantial and sustainable change in property taxes? So great question. And they're already seeing change. And this year, I think, was the first time they saw the benefits of what we did in 2019 because COVID kind of interrupted the bills we passed then. In the past, whatever your appraisal value went up, your property taxes went up almost at the same rate. If your value went up 8%, most people saw an 8% increase. Well, now when people go back and look at their property tax bill they got in October, compared to what their appraisal was, uh, particularly in our bigger cities and bigger counties, but everywhere across rural Texas, they saw that their tax bill actually didn't go up like it used to. But I hope if some people go back and look at it and they say, gosh, Dan was right. My appraisal went up really high, but my taxes 
didn't. In some cases, school taxes went down a little, went up a little. Last session, I increased the homestead exemption from 15,000 where it had been for decades to 25,000 previously in 15, and this last year to 40,000. Before I leave office, I'd like it to be $100,000 off the top. The average home in Texas is about $350,000 now. Some areas a little less, some areas a little bit more. But that's our goal. You shouldn't feel like you're running your your home from the the state. Uh, it is a main it is a main source of our, our revenues at local governments and school districts, and and uh, so we have to work with them. Uh, but they also have to work like we are, trying to keep our budgets, you know, no more than population inflation. Of course, you said property taxes is number one. Another one of your priorities, yeah. though, is education and making sure yes. that our schools have all of the resources they need and more. Those two things are so intimately linked. How do you keep raising the, the homestead exemption in a way that is sustainable for our school districts to make sure that they can also get more resources, given that those property taxes are where they're they're finding those resources? Yeah, so it's a great question. So what, what every time we raise the homestead exemption, we have to pay for that for the schools. In other words, we're not taking that from the schools. We're sending them a check instead of you sending them a check as a homeowner, if that makes sense. So I think the last time when we raised it to 40,000, I think it was about a billion three, a billion five. That comes out of our budget back to them. So, so in essence, the state sales tax collection is making up that difference, if that makes sense. I hope it does. So we do it in incremental steps that grows with our economy, grows with our budget. Some years you have a down year, some years you have a big up year like we have this year. But in essence, we want to keep those kind of programs something that we can say we're cutting this or we're raising that and it's going to stay that way we're not going to go back and take it back you have been uh hesitant to to commit as has the governor um to any kind of amendment to to sb8 you've kind of downplayed some of the rumblings among some or at least a couple republican senators on adding in exceptions for rape and incest into right. that abortion ban um and and kind of leaving it up to to the members for now but uh, Governor, I've never uh, heard you leave anything up just just to the members. I have a feeling that that if, if that was something you had in mind, uh, you you would be uh, at least heavily hinting to the members that you'd like to see that. Sure. If all look, of that was was up to look, you, would yeah, would you amend ahead. SB8 to add exceptions for for rape, incest, life of the mother, yeah. things like that? So I'm pro life, and look, every life is a uh, is a life, even through rape and incest. And the left likes to um, make this their whole argument. Uh, I don't call it rumblings of senators. Look, every senator is a, has a right to their opinion, and I respect their opinions, whether they're Republican or Democrat. And so, yes, we have had two Republicans who have said openly, but we'll have 19 Republicans. I haven't heard from the other 17. I don't think there's going to be a bill filed on it. I don't think, I don't know, by a Republican in the House or Senate. And so, uh, sometimes, and, and when you say that, you know, I, you know, look, I'm always listening to the senators and we work really well as a team together. So look, I don't think there'll be a groundswell uh, uh, argument on that or a bill on that by Republicans. We'll see. Everything that comes uh, within your priorities and under the surplus is, is going to take some bicameralism. Oh, yes, um, yeah, absolutely. What, we'll have to work. That's why my press conference, I didn't put out specifics I put out concept, a few specifics. Have you but, discussed you know, the concept with, with with Speaker Phelan, though? How how are your discussions with him? You know, he sets out his priorities. He has his job to do. He has a different job than I have. He gets elected by the people in a, in a you know 30, 40, 50,000 people in his district, and he gets elected by 150 House members. 
I get elected by over 4 million people in the state of Texas. And that's who I listen to. And that's my responsibility to them. And, you know, and let me say this. And all the other people who didn't vote for me either. Because most of what we do, when you think about it, 53% of our budget is education, 35% is healthcare, 11% is public safety. None of that is partisan. So everything we do, you know, tries to help all Texans. I, I think that we'll match up. I think what I've laid out has been well received by members in both chambers and I made it very clear. These are concepts and I want House members and Senate members to now get in the specifics and help write the bills. That's why I mean I sit back and listen to them. Ryan Chandler joins us now. You spoke with the Lieutenant Governor for more than a half hour. What did you find telling about his answers? We sure did. We hit on a lot of topics, not all of which just aired. I actually think that that the way that he spoke about the possibility of amending SB8 is very telling, and here's why. Dan Patrick is a very powerful legislator, one of the most powerful state officials in the entire country, and he's never been shy to wield that power. If he, he in his mind, wanted the Senate to add in exceptions for rape and incest or more clarifying language into SB8, it's a good bet that he would be asking senators to do that. He was also nonspecific about uh, the, the prospect of gambling legislation, um, but uh, he, he has said so far that no Republicans have filed bills on either of those topics and he hasn't asked them to. So I think if you are a proponent of amending SB8 or, or maybe expanding gambling in Texas, his answers throw cold water on both of those prospects. Now, some of Patrick's priorities for the legislature included ideas to help rural Texas, notably right. mental health care and rural law enforcement funding. What do you make of the emphasis he made on those rural needs? We've seen not just uh, in this lead up to session, but throughout the entire campaign cycle, a unique uh, emphasis on rural needs. Dan Patrick embarked on a 130 stop through rural Texas uh, bus tour throughout uh, this last summer and he really explains that it he says that it, it was one of the highlights of his life I think it really had an impact on his priorities um, and and I think that will be welcome for rural Texas because they have borne the brunt of a lot of the state's greatest challenges our, our rural hospitals are closing rural populations are dwindling and I think a lot of those issues have taken the back seat uh, in, in sessions past. Uh, Dan Patrick seems to, to be prioritizing a lot of those needs. Any of those uh, uh, rural priorities he listed, whether it's mental health hospitals or, or rural law enforcement, could cost billions of dollars. So we're going to have to uh, make some tough decisions as we get into deciding how we, we allocate that surplus. All right. Ryan Chandler, the newest member of our Texas politics team. Thank you. Thank Welcome you. Board. Thank you. All right, and you can see Ryan's full interview with the Lieutenant Governor online now. Scan the QR code on your screen to take you to the link on the Texas Politics page of our website. The plan to make big changes to the Texas electricity market now facing questions at the Capitol. We know we need this change. You all directed us to implement these changes. The proposed changes and how the people in charge are responding to concerns. Increasing the reliability of the Texas power grid is a priority for lawmakers in the upcoming session. The state tasked the Public Utility Commission with creating a reliability standard for ERCOT, the entity in charge of managing the grid. Monica Madden looks closer at the proposals. Making sure that consumers across Texas have the resources they need or, or the electricity they need when they want it. 
The House State Affairs Committee reviewing proposals for how to redesign the market for Texas's power grid after its near collapse in the 2021 February storm. We know we need this change. You all directed us to implement these changes. PUC Chairman Peter Lake says as Texas continues to grow, so will the need for dispatchable energy. That's power quickly distributed with an on or off switch. Something that when we have a peak demand, uh, uh, meaning we have high consumption and our sources are, are more intermittent, you can flip the switch to make sure that we can smooth out any uh, challenges we might have in providing electric service. Mark Bell, CEO of the Association of Electric Companies of Texas, says right now there are not a lot of incentives for companies to invest in dispatchable energy in Texas. Cost to reliability. Utility rates matter. Making sure consumers don't bear the brunt of those costs was also raised. We're going to have to pay something to get that private sector to invest what they need to invest to meet the demand that's coming. Companies that sell power should be required to guarantee that that power is coming from a reliable source. What's the most efficient way to get there? Monica Madden, State of Texas. Thank you again for joining us for State of Texas. I'm Josh Hinkle. We'll be back next week to bring you an in-depth look at Texas politics.